right. How was the 4th of July for everybody? Anybody burn anything down? Then it wasn't that fun. See, when you start burning things down, that's when you know it's exciting. Burn the barbecue, burn the carne. Hey, turn your Bibles to Hebrews. Chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, as Britt said, we're going to start on verse 7. And it reads like this. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he commended, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so blessed that you divinely spoke to Noah and you divinely speak to us that you preserved your word for us that we might be stirred in our hearts. And we ask that this evening you would do a wonderful work, that you would find your way into the hearts of your people to remove anything that needs to be removed, to encourage those who need to be encouraged, to stir and to just shake us up, Lord, to be all that you would call us to be. And we're just mindful, Lord, that as your scripture is declared, we even ask that you would set in us a godly fear that would please you. We ask these things according to faith. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our text this evening in verse 7, there's a few things that we know as it is described. The story here, obviously what we're getting is kind of the Reader Digest version of Noah. We know that God spoke to Noah divinely. We're not sure what method God chose, but we know it was divine. We know what God said to Noah, and that was to prepare an ark for the saving of his household. We know that Noah was uh, moved by godly fear, and he began to prepare that ark. We know this allowed him to become an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. And faith, friends, is what you and I have come this evening for, is to be encouraged in our faith. Faith has been recorded in this chapter so that you and I would be stirred in our faith. It has been declared and it has been preserved and documented so that you and I would glean, that we would be encouraged in such a way, not being condemned, not being bummed out because we don't have the faith of these people. Kind of like um, a football team, prior to a Friday night game, the coach will often play clips, highlights of just nasty beatings. And a team would watch this and be encouraged and stirred in in them and it would uh, hopefully cause them the following evening or maybe even just before the game to be excited 
to perform in an equal manner. They wouldn't watch it and say, man, I'm never going to put a hit like uh, Lawrence Taylor. I'm never going to be this guy. They would never do that. That's why the coach does it. He shows the clips so that they leave and they're like, yes, I can't wait to put a hit on some fool. (laughs) You and I are looking into Hebrews 11 to be stirred in the same way. Obviously, we're not out to go hit people. But that we would be stirred in the depths of our hearts. Our souls would be stirred, not in a condemning way, but in a wonderful way. That is our hope as a pastor, as, as, as a staff, that is our hope. That each one of you would be stirred in your faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. As we read right here in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is. And that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Tonight, let us seek Him diligently. That our faith may please Him. Don't you want to please God? For all that He's done for us, don't you just want to please Him? Amen. I equally want to please Him. And so that is why this, this scripture is preserved, that we would also be able to be stirred in our faith, that we would please Him, that we would be heirs of His righteousness. It's not written so that, that we would look into see, see the unattainable position. But as Britt said, These are people like you and I. Noah eventually died. You cut him, he bleeds. The same as you and I. And to get more of the story outside of the Reader's Digest version, we need to go back to the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. That is in the book of Genesis chapter 6. The book of Genesis, chapter 6, 7, and 8, give us a really good, clear picture of the story of Noah. I'm going to abbreviate a lot of it because of uh, the time constraints. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out an imaginary canvas. I'm going to try to paint for you the picture of the story of Noah. It begins... With the Mesopotamian Valley, God looks down and he sees that men had become wicked and perverse. Verses 1 through 6 document the perversion, the wickedness, and as is declared in verse 5, every man's thought was evil continually, his, his evil intent was continual. Needless to say, things were beyond in shambles. Man had lost his love for God, or even, even the, the hint of the existence of God, in such a way that perversion sexually, um, it, it, it declares that violence had broken out in such radical ways. 
And in verse 6 it says that God was sorry that he made man. And he was grieved in his heart. You see, man had become no better than animals. He was dominated by his flesh, no longer concerned with God, but only with his own bodily appetites, just as animals are. So God told Noah that the end of all flesh is to come before me, as declared in verse 13. At this point, he lovingly decided to put them out of their misery. The judgment that would come would accomplish quickly and mercifully what sin and perversion would bring out eventually. That is their own destruction. He was doing them a favor, so to speak, just as a, a horse. It don't matter if he's just a horse from the farm or one from the Kentucky Derby. When he becomes lame, what do they do? They put him out of his misery. He's good for nothing, so they, they take him, take him out. God had looked upon the earth and he saw that man had become so perverse, so wicked in such a way that knowing, because him being a just and all-knowing God, knew their hearts and decided to mercifully put them out of their own misery. But understand this. Even our God, our just God, had shown that he was a long-suffering Loving God. Even in the most awful conditions that we read of here in this chapter, we are told that he gives them 120 days to repent. Excuse me, 120 years to repent. After knowing all things, knowing where they were, knowing the depravity, knowing the perverse and nastiness of their condition... He still set up an option, a way out. Because He is a loving and just God. Amen? Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And just as He did then, He is now. Showing his grace and his mercy. He gave them 120 years after making the judgment call that after 120 years, judgment will come. But I'm going to give them a time frame to repent because he is a wonderful, loving God. And so wickedness of man had increased and God's judgment was to come. But his kindness, not being slacked, but being long-suffering, God speaks to Noah and says, grab some gopher wood and make an ark. Because judgment is coming. God spoke to Moses, or excuse me, spoke to Noah and said, this is what is needed to happen. Judgment is coming, and so I need you, as it says in verse 13, excuse me, verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. 
And then the Lord begins to describe the very details of this ark. And with the details of the ark, we're able, because most of us are not familiar with the cubics, but we are familiar with feet, this is what the ark would have looked like. Picture a 30-story building falling down. That's how long it was. It was 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Couldn't find many pictures of it because there was no Polaroids back then. (laughs) What is described is not really a boat, but uh, would better be said a well-ventilated barge. It was only meant to float. It was not meant to sail. It was not meant to have, you know, big old fat mercuries in the back pushing it anywhere. It had one purpose. And uh, some commentators had described the ark as picture a shoebox. That's more or less what it looked like. And with this shoebox, picture it the size of the Titanic. That was the ark that God had called Noah to build. Does that take faith? Well, just imagine... As verse 14, as God speaks to Noah and says, here's what I want you to make me. And Noah's writing it down and you imagine, wow, this thing is gigantic. <laughs> For some of us, maybe we have, would have gotten down to the length. and the, I'm done. I'm out. That's too big. Maybe some of us would have gotten to the point of, okay, this is how high, but wide, what, deep, woo, three stories, I'm out, I'm done. But Noah, having this great faith and this wonderful God, wrote down the description and then began to gather materials. What faith this man had. And then to know that it was going to take 120 years. That man obviously had the fruits of the Spirit evident in his life, such as patience. I don't remember how long um, this building took, but it took too long. How long was it? Like a year or something. Nine months, close to a year. And it was killing us took Noah 120 years to build this ark, to construct it. What faith. Can you imagine waking up after just even 100 years? Okay. Time to go build that ark. That's amazing faith. See, he had known his calling at this point. Because he had heard the voice of the Lord. So he gathered the materials. Commentators say it it had to have cost them some money. Some serious cash. It had to have taken some mad skills. But on the top of the list, it took major faith. Faith, because in this valley, there was no major bodies of water. Imagine the faith at this point. Even having laid the foundation of this ark 
and, and at this point, at some point, seeing the size of it, and then having people ask you, what is this thing? It's a boat. It's a barge. What? I recently was in the San Ynez Valley. Actually, this morning I was there. And I was, I, as I was leaving, I kid you not, the, the view is beautiful. There's, you know, mountains everywhere, and there's vineyards everywhere. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see a sailboat with its sail out. Huge, a huge sailboat. I mean, it wasn't gigantic. It wasn't no uh, ark. But I just thought to myself, that is a funny picture. In the midst of vineyards, in the midst of all these mountains, in this valley, why this sailboat? And not only the sailboat, but it's sail out. And I thought to myself, that is what it was like. For these people in his generation to be seeing this boat being constructed, it, it was the same effect. Listen, fool, what are you doing? Why the boat? There's no water. And at this time in history, it was about 1,600 years from uh, the birth of Adam. We are told in Genesis 2-5 that at this point there was no rain. So no rain had fallen. And so for Noah to uh, d- describe to somebody, well, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be rain. Rain? Rain? I don't know if you know Noah, but it's never rained. Period. It's not like, oh, it doesn't rain in L.A. It's like it never has rained. No rain. Imagine the faith it must have taken. Imagine that faith, no body of water nearby, in a valley, up until this point, and then for the Lord to say that I will be bringing floodwaters. For his brain to just be able to seep this in and say, man, floodwaters, from where? Obviously, it didn't phase him a bit, because the faith remained for 120 years. During this time of construction, there was a straight party going on. We are told in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, that in the days of Noah, while Noah was constructing this ark, there was eating, drinking, and marrying. Everyone was just doing this. Yeah, party! Kind of interesting, the cup I pull out. (laughs) There's just water in here. (laughs) And that is the scene. What faith it might have taken, because as he's building the ark, everyone else around him, not just the guy down the corner, not just the guy around the way, but everybody was partying. Everybody was drinking. And we're told in Second Peter 2.5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So in this time of building the ark, he had the time to preach. He was a preacher of righteousness. So obviously, he was occupying the time by laboring unto the Lord, having great faith in the Lord, and preaching of the Lord's goodness, his righteousness. For 120 years, Years this man had a ministry of preaching to the wicked. And we're told only his wife 
his three sons and their wives had heeded the word of the Lord. That alone, imagine the faith that it takes to proceed day after day, preaching whenever given the opportunity. I don't know if he preached every day, but I imagine that any scoffer walking by, any opportunity that the Lord had given him, Noah was going to take it. Noah was going to take it. And so after 120 years go by, the Lord says in verse 19 to begin to start gathering the animals two by two. We got a slide for you to give you a little idea of what it looked like. For some people, this is hard to understand. Like, how did this happen? Listen, when you're the creator of the universe and you go, your creation comes. Right? I mean, is it hard to imagine we see an owner of a dumb dog and says, and the dog comes? Okay, when you're the creator of the universe and you go, your creation comes. And that's what's happening here. And imagine after 120 years, after having the faith to believe all these things, to gather all this stuff, all the material, preaching, seeing the scoffers, seeing everybody partying, all this. Imagine all this is going on, and then he finally gets all of them in there. He's got three levels, and he's organizing things. It must have taken some organizational skills. That had to have been his wife. His wife said, okay, we're going to have the elephants over here, and we've got to balance things, so we'll put you over here. And... And she's doing all this, and and they're being obedient to the Lord. They get all of them into the ark, and the Lord closes uh, the door, we're told. And then guess what? Seven days before the rain falls. Imagine the faith at this point. Imagine the wife, the sons looking and saying, Pops, we're all in here. Where's the rain? We're told that the rain did not come for seven days. Seven days. You'll find that in, in uh, <clears throat> excuse me, 710. Seven days. And, and you know what's amazing at this point? I think the faith of Noah, after having endured all that he endured, I imagine he had set up for himself some Ebenezers. The Lord had just given him uh, uh, monumental moments such as uh, uh, providing all the wood and providing everything that needed to be done. And so at this point where you and I perhaps would say, man, we're all in here, Lord, what's going on? We would maybe freak out being anxious. But Noah at this point, I believe, had just so wonderfully said, okay, now it's time to make this counter ducks. Let's make sure everything's in order. That's what the Lord is doing here. And then seven days go by, and then the rain starts. Forty days, we're told. And at this point, the judgment had come. At this point, we're told in the Bible that all who were on the earth had perished. Every creepy thing, everything that was not in that boat died. They didn't find their way to the top of the waters. They died, we're told. 
And I don't know about you, but as I studied this text, I was stirred in my faith to think, wow, all these monumental moments, all these, as the scripture has been preserved for, for me to just be stirred in my own heart, I thought, wow, seven days before the rain, so many times I'm anxious or wanting things and, and, and I was just ministered to at the fact that, Gerald, how many times do you just lose your patience? And here we see this man of great faith taking 120 years to make this boat and preaching at the same time. And we're told as we'll, just, as we'll read in, in verse um, 8, that Noah, Noah was this great man of faith, but I would hope that you and I, as we have ventured into this study, would say, well, what can I glean from this? What can I go home with? What kind of tips would increase my faith to please God in a similar way. Because we're given more details of Noah, of, I believe, some key things that you and I can apply to our lives or at least do a gut check and to say, hey, you and I are no different than this man Noah outside of perhaps these few things. See, we are much like Noah because like Noah, he living in the end times. You and I live in the end times. Sitting where you are, hearing from this pulpit, you know that, man, we are living in the end times. Noah lived before the flood, but we live before the fire. He spoke of the coming rain, but we will speak of the coming reign of Jesus Christ. And we, like Noah, are end-time believers. We are believing in a Jesus Christ in the same era that he did, in that same time frame as judgment would come. We know that it will not come by water. But we know there is a judgment to come by fire. And God is looking at our current world, and just as he did with Noah, he is going to put an end to the violence. He's going to put an end to the sexual immorality. He's going to put an end to the evil that is taking place in this world. But because God is a loving God, a God who is long-suffering, he will allow that time of grace. But then after the appointed time, that as the Bible describes, nobody knows the day or the hour, but in, in, in Matthew 24, it clearly states, but in as the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. That's what makes you and I, it's such a, it's such a monumental moment that we're studying this man and asking that the Lord would stir in us faith because we are in the same position as he was. 
end-time believers. And like Noah, we have to respond in the same way to a world that is rejecting God. What was it that provided him this growth in God to have such radical faith? What was it, Lord? Speak to us that we too may emulate this same life because, like we've declared, the man died just as you and I will die. The man bleeds just as you and I bleed. When he was building that ark, he was sweating just as you and I. And so now we look at verse 8 and we will take some time and ask the Lord, what is it that we can glean? What is it that we can apply to our lives that we too be this radical believer in the end times? Amen? Well, I believe it all starts with verse 8. That's the key verse. And that is, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. That favor from God. Grace, which is so needed, but yet we know, and the book of James says, for those who are proud, man, God resists them, but He gives grace to the humble. Noah was a humble man. He had to have been. Because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, reading this verse, one could come to the conclusion saying, so wait a minute, did God favor Noah? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? He found this favor? What, what is God playing favorites here? I like what one commentator said. He said, no. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. As his eyes were gazed upon the Lord, he found grace. You see, the people around Noah, their eyes were on themselves and on each other. They were far from the Lord. And just as we see our brother Peter, as he stepped out of the boat with major faith, walking on water, what happened when he took his eyes off the Lord? He sunk. What a great application for you and I that we would be intent, that we would be stirred in the depths of our heart to gaze into the eyes of the Lord because that is where you'll find grace, mercy, love. And so Noah, he did just that. He gazed upon the Lord. And that's what we read about, right? In, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, because of this great cloud of witnesses, we should run the race with perseverance, right? And just get rid of anything that would hinder us and fix our eyes. Upon who? The author and the perfecter of our faith. And that is Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, man endured the cross. And when you look into those eyes, Ladies and gentlemen, you'll find grace. The grace that is needed for you to have this faith. The grace that is needed to allow you, as is indicated in verse 9, to walk with God. And when your eyes are on the Lord, you become intimate with the Lord. And we see in this verse 
the genealogy of Noah, and we read that Noah walked with God. What does that mean? The implication here is that he had a personal fellowship between God. That he acted with God. He lived a life of communion with God. It was his constant care to conform himself to the will of God. To please God. That is what it means to walk with God. To have that intimacy with him. And do you see how the progression is that when you gaze into the eyes of the Lord, you find that grace and you find what is needed to walk with Him. Intently. And then even to the place of, man, I I need to conform my life to this one I am walking with. An intimacy with God. What hinders you from intimacy with God? What hinders you from having a walk with God? When I take walks with my wife, we connect in a way that is so needed for our marriage. A simple walk with my wife will remedy many things in our marriage. It would be safe to say that equally a simple walk with God will remedy many issues in your life. Many anxieties, many troubles. A simple walk with God. Time alone with Him. Time just sitting or even just taking a walk on the beach with nobody else but your Creator. Noah walked with God. And by walking with God, the natural progression would lead to being obedient to the Word of God. Read with me verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him to do. He did it. And when you take those nice long strolls with God... The progression is that you will become obedient to him. In this account of Noah, seven times it says this phrase, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. He obeyed the word of God. The word of God, friends, we need it. That's why God preserved it. That's why we, we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, the scripture has been given to us. It's been inspired by God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction, for encouragement. Psalm 119 declares the word of God as the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. The book of James describes it as a mirror And as we look into it, this perfect law of liberty, that we would be doers of the word of God, that we wouldn't walk away. And and as we look into it, and as the word of God would say, gee, you are prideful or you're this, that I wouldn't walk away and say, man, I'm sure glad I'm humble. It doesn't make sense. But the word of God is not only a lamp, 
It's not only for our survival, but it's for our very character building. And as you're walking with God, as you're gazing into the eyes of God, as He begins to speak to you, you become obedient. Because you know. You know that if you tried it your way and you tried it God's way, isn't it always wonderful, refreshing, and just a blessing filled when you obey the Word of God. It's not always easy, but it's always profitable. Amen? Amen. It's always profitable. And as I said, as, as, as James declared, I love what it says. It says, man, remove yourself from filthiness and this and every kind of evil. Get rid of all that stuff and be doers of the Word of God and don't look into it and be the man who looks in there and says, oh, everything's fine and walks away but that you would look into it intently and, and, and as it would expose to you, man, you got issues, and then you begin to deal with them because you're obedient to the Word of God. That when the Word of God says, man, you need to remove this from your life, as it describes in Matthew 18, if your eye causes you to stumble, then gouge it out. And so many times as believers, uh, the word of God is spoken and we're so not willing to be obedient. And when we gather uh, uh, corporately like this, the word of God is wonderfully preached. And then it's you and I that now need to apply it, to be doers of it. And that if you know something is causing you to stumble, that you remove it now. Because the word of God said so. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 22 that, man, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience, as God was speaking to Saul. He said, do these things, Saul. And Saul partially did those things and soon found out that, man, partial obedience is not obedience at all. It's disobedience. And rebellion is as witchcraft, it says. And so many times Christians find themselves in rebellion to what the Word of God is speaking, and then you're saying, why isn't the Lord blessing me? Man, be a doer of the Word, and you'll see where you have found error in your life. As an encouragement, we need to move on to being obedient to the Word of God. Just think of the obedience of Noah. Look what it has brought. Or as Romans 5.19 says, For by one man's disobedience, many were made, what? Sinners. But so too, as by one man's obedience, many have been saved. Amen? Amen? The obedience of our Savior brought you and I life and life abundantly. That alone should just spur you on to be obedient to God's Word. Look what it brought. Look at the blessings of obedience. It has brought salvation to you and I. But in the same page, look at the repercussion of disobedience. Ask Adam. If Adam was here, he would say, people don't disobey the word of God. 
the repercussions are horrific. And yet, this evening, we can be spurred in our faith and say yes and amen to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. He gazed into the eyes of the Lord, which caused him to walk with the Lord, which then allowed him to be obedient to the word of the Lord. And then we see that Noah was a worker for the Lord. He labored 120 years worth every day, laboring unto the Lord. Noah was a man who redeemed his time. Even though he knew that the world was headed towards destruction, it didn't faze him. He labored. He occupied the time. And it's safe to say for you and I that there is no room for idleness. Because when your hands are on the plow, when your hands are laboring for the Lord, it's hard to get in trouble. That's why I believe the Lord has placed me in the ministry. He said, man, this guy, I'm making him faster. Because you give me any idle time, I'm for sure going to find trouble. And if you're like me, you'll do likewise. And that's why it's important to even heed this portion of the scripture and understand that, man, laboring unto the Lord doesn't necessarily mean you're in the full-time ministry as Britt had um, indicated at the beginning. That wherever God has placed you, whether you're a postman or you're a pilot for an airline or you're uh, pulling weeds in somebody's backyard. All those things could be done unto the Lord. Amen? And by doing so, by doing things unto the Lord, your attitude will be adjusted. And then even so, you will be a blessing to those around you. Friends, if anything, leave here today desiring to... Just gaze upon the eyes of grace, looking into the Lord's eyes, walking intently, intimately with Him, obedient to His Word, so that you would be a laborer for Him. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? What is, is Paul saying that we need to work out our salvation because through working those things out, we will gain salvation? No. We don't gain salvation through laboring for him, right? No man can boast such a thing, right? Right. Yet in this scripture, I believe, is a wonderful balance of what you and I, because of what we have been saved from, that there is this wonderful, um, as I just think of it, this wonderful privilege of laboring for him. What an honor it is that we would be plucked out of the depths of despair and given a position as a child, as a servant, all these things that are wrapped up in Christ. Friends, 
you and I, just as Noah, Noah is a wonderful picture of this passage of co-laboring with God, working out, literally working out his salvation daily as he was putting those planks together, as he was putting the pitch of tar on those planks, he was working out his own salvation and the salvation of others. But he couldn't boast of working out his own salvation because it wasn't his plan at all. It was God's plan. It was God's materials. And it was ultimately God who closed that door. But it was a wonderful balance of God working with man. And as man was laboring daily unto his God preaching and and just persevering through the process look what happened the ark was made and all that would go into it would be saved you and i as we work out our salvation and just doing what the lord would have us do tomorrow when he has you go to work when he has you laboring unto him when he has you sharing your love sharing the love of christ And here's the wonderful thing, the balance of, I believe that Noah, as he just um, diligently labored unto the Lord daily, and as the Lord would bring to him, he would be faithful to preach to them. Because working out your own salvation, working those things out and sharing, I, I would hate for you to get the idea that, hey, let's grab some picket signs, let's go out there, let's save everybody, let's tell everyone about Jesus. Yes, you need to tell everyone about Jesus, but primarily it needs to be done just by loving and being obedient to God's word. And that is to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and loving others. People need to be loved. People need to be, they need to see you as a believer before they hear you, Right? So many times Christians want to tell you about uh, the love of the Lord, but believers listen and they're like, I don't know matchy you. <laughs> You're saying these things, but I don't see them in your life. That's why it's important to be obedient to the Word of God. And as the, the Word of God would say, here, plunge this out of your life, get pride out of your life, and then go out and love my people. And then I will bring to you those who need to hear of the love of Christ. That is laboring with the Lord in the balance of this almighty God, working out your salvation. What a wonderful opportunity. What a wonderful privilege that you and I can lead people to the Lord. It's not us doing it. It's God's plan. It's His salvation. It's, it's all His. But you and I have this privilege of co-laboring with Him. And you have to see it as a privilege. And you have to be stirred in your faith to go and be his labor. Because, friends, we're living in the last days. And the last point is by gazing into the eyes of the Lord, by walking intently, intimately with Him, by being obedient to His Word and laboring to His Word, you will become a wonderful witness just as Noah was. Don't you want to be a good witness? Many would argue and say, well, the man, he, he really didn't say, I mean, it was just eight of them. But ultimately... Look what has become of that ministry. Look what has become of those eight. Of those eight would become the the lineage of our Savior. It's a powerful 
powerful witness. No, it was. And friends, he was just like you and I. And then the day you die, it could be said the same of you. What a powerful witness for the Lord. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That they may see you laboring unto him. And say, wow, what a wonderful light. What a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful witness. And tonight, my, my hope and my prayer is that there would be a sense of urgency in you. Because like Noah, the judgment came. And you and I, collectively in this room, know beyond a handful of people who are not saved. There should be an urgency to be in this light. It shouldn't be your burden, but it should be an urgency. Because as you will read later in the passage, Genesis 7.20, the flood came and those who weren't in the boat perished. The fire will come, and those who are not in Christ will perish. So you and I have this wonderful responsibility of being true witnesses. That people would know us by our fruits, not because of what we're saying, but because of what we're doing, because we're laboring unto Him. And yes, even by the way you pull those weeds, you can be a light for those who are around you. That it would be said of you and say, man, everyone else is pissed off at the boss, but you're not. What's up with you? And there you are laboring, the Lord brings to you, and now you're a preacher. You can say, well, let me tell you, it's not actually me at all. It's the Lord in me. He's blessed me. And I believe because I spent some time with him today, it allowed me to be what you're seeing right now. That's how simple it is. And, and that's, I believe, what the Lord would have us for tonight. Are you gazing into the eyes of the Lord? Are you finding that grace? Are you walking with him? Are you spending time? Are you, are you intimate with him? Are you one who reads the word and is half obedient? Don't be. Be encouraged tonight. Be encouraged. Draw a line in the sand and says, man, it's time for me to stop sloughing off. I need to be obedient to the word. I need to be a laborer like Noah. Let it be a clip that you watch tonight like those football uh, guys and just, oh, yeah, I need to labor unto the Lord. It's time for me to get off my lazy butt. Let tonight be an encouragement for, for you to just say, you know what, there's too many people around me that don't know Jesus. And it's time for me to get right. It's time to get right because people are going to get left. And this evening, what a wonderful opportunity the Lord has given us to come before him, to gaze into his eyes. 
to come before him and to say, God, I want to walk with you because it's been a while. What a wonderful opportunity we have to say, God, you know what? You've revealed to me, as I looked into the perfect law of liberty, you revealed many things to me, and I have not cut them out. And it's time. It's time to be obedient. Lord, you've called me to be this, and I've been lazy on my butt. It's time to get right. That's the beauty. In a sense, we are in that 120 years. It's time for us to make the adjustments. Amen? Jesus, thank you for this evening. And Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to get right. Lord, we love worshiping you. And in this time, we ask that you would minister to the depths of our souls. Because Lord, we want to leave here having been spurred in our faith. We even ask collectively, corporately, increase our faith to believe to come before you knowing, Lord, that you are pleased by faith. And we want to please you. We want to labor for you. We want to do all that you called us to do. And Lord, we know that all this cannot be done if we are not abiding in you. If we are not asking that your Holy Spirit would come upon us to empower us to do these things. So we ask that you would come minister to the depths of our hearts. We give you permission to have your way with us in any way you would speak to us, in any way you would deal with us, any way you would rebuke us. We say yes and amen to what you have to say. We yield to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.